John chapter 19, picking it up at verse 31. I'm just going to read it straight through. Since it was the day of preparation, the Jews did not want the bodies left on the cross until the Sabbath, during the Sabbath, especially because that Sabbath was a day of great solemnity. Keep in mind that the day after Passover is always a Sabbath day. It doesn't matter what day of the week Passover falls on, it's always classified as a high special solemnity Sabbath. So this could have happened on any day, frankly. The tradition tells us Jesus died on Friday. But the tradition could easily be wrong. He could have died on a Thursday or a Wednesday or a Tuesday or even a Monday or a Sunday because the day after Passover is always a Sabbath day. How do they high, determine Passover? A high step based upon the moon. The moon, okay. And using that, you can calculate when the Passovers fell in the year of Jesus' death. And you can tell pretty much, just depends upon which year you choose, therefore, as to when it actually occurred. And we're not going to go into that right now. That's another subject. We, we, we spent a long time on it in the synoptics, and, and I just want to keep on going. End of chapter 20, so I was going to pick it up at 31 and just read it straight through. So we'll do that. So I'll start over. Since it was the day of preparation, the Jews did not want the bodies left on the cross during the Sabbath, especially because that Sabbath was a day of great solemnity. So they asked Pilate to have the legs of the crucified men broken and the bodies removed. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once blood and water came out. He who saw this has testified so that you also may believe. His testimony is true and he knows that he tells the truth. These things occurred so that the scripture might be fulfilled. None of his bones shall be broken. And again, in another passage of scripture says, they will look on the one whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, though a secret one because of his fear of the Jews, asked Pilate to let him take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and removed his body. Nicodemus, who had at first come to Jesus by, sight, by night, also came being a, bringing a mixture of myrrhs and aloes, weighing about 100 pounds. Uh, some translations render that 75. 75. Right. They took the body of Jesus and wrapped it with the spices in linen cloths, according to the burial custom of the Jews. Now there was a garden in the place where he was crucified, and in the garden there was a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. And so because it was the Jewish day of preparation and the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. And that's the burial of Jesus. And as we read it in the other three Gospels as well, parallel to this, it's extraordinarily similar with details being different. The utilization of the spices in John is not found in the synoptics. Nicodemus isn't found in the synoptics. However, it is, 
It is Joseph of Arimathea who does the deed, taking the body down and putting it in the tomb. One of the Gospels tells us that it was his tomb, but they all agree that no one had ever been laid there before, which tells us it was new because in the Jewish tradition, and you know some people don't really catch this, in the Jewish tradition, burial wasn't permanent. One was buried so that the body could desiccate, so that the body could rot and all you'd have left is bones, and then you take the bones and you put them in an ossuary, a box. You put the name of the person on it and you put it on a shelf. Now, we, we practice, we, we practice uh, the um, oh, um, permanent burial or we do uh, cremation. And it's actually more like, a little bit more like our practice of cremation that the Jews would do where they would take the body and put it in a tomb and let it lay there for at least a year. And the spices help both to cut the odor and also to accelerate the desiccation process so that by the end of the year the body has desiccated and then you come in and you take the bones and you put them in an ossuary and there you go. You've, you're, you're done and then you use the tomb again. And so these things get used over and over and over by families. But if you were very wealthy you would often want to start a new one for yourself so that you wouldn't be rotting where your parents rotted and your grandparents rotted and your great-grandparents rotted and that kind of thing. So, uh, or if you happen to have a family with many elderly members, you may realize, well, there's a chance that you might die and there may not be a tomb available for you. And in a large family like that, that could easily happen. So they would make an extra one, another one, another place for your body to desiccate. And that seems to be the case here. Joseph of Arimathea, a very wealthy man, he may very well have had many family members and, and there's a chance maybe that he realized that he would die soon and there may not be a place for him to be uh, desiccating. So he had an extra tomb made for himself according to one of the other gospels, not according to John. But that's the tomb they used for Jesus. That's why it was available right then and there. Okay, now we're in chapter 20. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. Now, I want to ask you a question. What day of the week is the first day of the week? Well, for us it's Sunday. Monday, but Saturday. Saturday. Okay, I've heard Monday, Sunday. Saturday, and Sunday. 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 Well, that's Saturday yeah. after done sundown. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the, it's an interesting question. Yeah. It's an interesting question. Plus working people, it's Monday. <laughs> because yeah. in the United yeah. States, we tend to say the weekend the end of, is the end of the week, Saturday and Sunday, and then Monday is the beginning of the next week. But in reality, if you look at your calendars, Sunday. you'll see Sunday starts the week, right. and Saturday ends, it's the week ends, the ends of the week. Now in Europe, in Russia, for instance, they'll put them both at the end. Yeah, that's fascinating. Mm -hmm. Switzerland does have Mondays. Uh -huh. And that's strange, but we maintain the tradition of Sunday being the first day of the week comes first, and Saturday being the seventh, the last day of the week, the Sabbath day, comes last. Isn't that interesting? Well, the first day of the week is Sunday. That's Sunday, the first day of the week. So no matter when and how and where you date the death of Jesus, this is happening on Sunday. 
Could it have been Saturday night? It's well, let's read it. Early, the first early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark. It right. could very easily be any time after sundown Saturday night, because after sundown on Saturday night, in the Jewish way of reckoning things, it is now Sunday. Right. Now, because they state while it was still dark, it seems to lend force to the concept that, in fact, it's getting close to sun up. It's past midnight. It is even Western way of thinking now Sunday. And as we will see in the other three Gospels, that's pinned down even more. So, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. Now that's past tense, isn't it? Completed action. The, to the stone's already been removed. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. No definition of who the they is, by the way. We assume she's thinking it's the Jewish authorities, but that's an assumption. Probably correct. Then Peter and the other disciple set out and went toward the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings there and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. Hmm. Hmm. He saw and believed. For as yet, and then look at the strange verse 9. I'm curious to hear how other translators deal with this. For as for at, he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. That sounds confusing. Mine's it, in parentheses. Does that mean anything? It, it, it may mean something. Uh, in your case, it means that the translators are putting that as an aside. Now... Is it used the for as at verse uh, 9? No, it just says 9 and then parentheses. Uh, they still did not understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. End of but it also says, but it does say just prior to that in verse 8 that the... He saw and believed. He saw and believed. Yes. How do, what do you think that means? I mean, on one hand, it sounds like the disciple whom Jesus loved, John sees and actually believes that Jesus is raised from the dead. And then the very next verse, same sentence, although it's, it's probably not in the Greek, um, it then says, but they didn't really believe. Yeah. That's why I would think it would have been added afterwards, later, because they got to explain why does, he believed. It does kind of sound like a note that somebody might have written into the margin, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, especially since he's talking about himself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. The disciple whom Jesus loved, the beloved disciple, is generally understood as John, the author of the Gospels. So, 
yeah, that's a little interesting. It might have, it might be that that verse nine is was an aside, a comment written in the margin at some point early on. Now there is no textual evidence for that. Yeah, I've already looked that one up. But um, nevertheless, it's it's a little weird how that reads. I mean, yes, he believes, and but then but then it, it immediately follows with, but they didn't really understand. Maybe just he believed and the others didn't understand. Well, that's one way you might understand that. Or he, he believed Mary Magdalene. <laughs> well, she doesn't believe. She thinks somebody's carried the body away. That could be that he believed that someone had stolen the body. If that's how you understand it, then it's all consistent. And that could, that could easily be the way in which the person who read it, who made that remark in the margin, assuming that's what happened, Understood it. Yeah, well, it doesn't say that Mary looked into the tomb either, just said the stone had been rolling away. Yeah, yeah. she just saw this. She assumed the body had been stolen. Yeah. Isn't this the one that said the two guards were there to watch them? Is this no. The one? No, no. Another one? Matthew. Okay, <laughs> you get them all mixed up. Yes, we get them all mixed up, which is why it's important to read them parallel at this point because they are so close. Um, I don't want to stop yet, I want to keep going. So let's keep going with verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, Tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not hold on to me, because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went, and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Which makes Mary Magdalene what? The first missionary. The first missionary? <laughs> yeah. Evangelist. The first evangelist. The first witness of the resurrection the first proclaimer of the resurrection of Jesus was a woman. She talked to him first. She was the first to talk to him. And she's the one she said, go tell them. Uh-huh. Yeah, she said, go and tell them. That's what Kathy used why a woman could preach. She said, Absolutely. We got, we got the first commandment. You most certainly did. The women were the first who were called to go and proclaim the good news. Because in 10, John and Peter went back home as soon as they saw this. That's what it says. Mm -hmm. yeah. The disciples return to their house. She's still there. She's the one who sees Jesus first. She's the one who then is told, go and proclaim this to my brothers. That wasn't too nice of them. Why did they leave her alone? 
They're guys. What do you expect? <laughs> it's a guy thing. We went to tell it's the others or something. No, no, what a Remember, what is, why, we're why outnumbered in here. Why, right? didn't John, why didn't John and Peter go run around up the other disciples and all that and say, hey, something's happened here. You need to Maybe come they look did. instead of going home. Maybe that was the reason why they went home. I don't know. I don't look. I don't. By know. home, it might not mean their house. They went to. The they think they were all hiding out in the upper room. So. <laughs> oh, interesting. But you know, even, even, but even though they said Mary Magdalene, when she said they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, we do not know where they have laid him. Yeah. So you makes you wonder she must have had other women there. Well, like the other take a look say. at that now. Yeah, it doesn't say there's three men. Take a look at that. Know. It says only in John's gospel, it simply identifies her only, and yet her text, her dialogue, seems to say there were more than one of them. Well, that's because the other gospels tell us the same thing and put more than one Mary, one person there. Let's go to Mark. We'll go to Mark, chapter 16. You know, before we get off that, we, mine actually says, I do not know where they have taken him in the uh, international version, not we. Yeah, but what does the original script say? <laughs> what does the Greek say? Yeah. Just a second and I'll look. Uh, that's verse, uh, <laughs> verse 2. Verse 2. We. It's the it's the the pronoun is the 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 um, it's the um, first person plural we. And first one tells the three that it is. Well, that's that's what I'm getting yeah. getting to. Mark chapter sixteen gives us. Remember, Mark is the oldest of the written gospels. Mark chapter sixteen, verse one. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene. And Mary, the mother of James, and Salome. So we got Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome. Three women. Wrought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Interesting. In John's Gospel, that was done by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, preparing his body for burial. In Mark, it's the women who are doing it. That actually is in accord with Jewish tradition, tradition by the way, yeah. that the women would be the ones who would anoint the body. That's fascinating. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen. Ooh. John says, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark. Mark says, when the sun had risen. Hmm. Maybe it just barely risen. Yeah. It's still a little bit dark out there. Mm. <laughs> and, the, and the stone's still there. Well, he wasn't there, was he? No, Jesus is not there. No, I mean Mark. Mark, no, Mark wasn't there. But this John is. Supposed John to be. is supposed to be right. Hmm. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They had been saying to one another, "Who, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb?" When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. Interesting. 
Interesting. So that agrees with John. The stone has been rolled back. They didn't know it was going to be rolled back. They were wondering how they were going to get it back. And they get there and they see it's already been rolled back. Well, that's good. Hmm. They were wondering how it was going to happen. And then they discovered it's been done for them. But it's already light. Hmm. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man. A young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised, he is not here. Look, there is the place they laid him. But go tell his disciples, and Peter, that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were <coughs> afraid. Now we know that ain't the ending, not really. It's the ending we have in front of us, but there are alternative endings. There's the shorter ending and there's the longer ending and neither of them are original to the text. The King James will have the longer ending in it. It just keeps on going. But um, the, there's a shorter ending in mine and then the longer ending, both of those date later. They're added on to solve this weird problem of them being quiet about it. We know they we know they weren't quiet about it. Yes, they were afraid, but they went ahead and maybe at first they thought they weren't going to, and then they did. Hmm. Similarities abound. One of the biggest and most important is, of course, that it's Mary Magdalene, who is the one who first recognizes that the tomb is empty, that Jesus has been raised. <coughs> Uh, she also has this conversation with this angel. Isn't that interesting? This young man. No John comes a-running. No Peter comes a-running. They've never mentioned a woman angel, have they? Never in the Bible. No, no, no. no all men. All angels in Scripture we'll long are here, so how can male. They <laughs> well, Jesus is still fairly young. Huh? Well, yeah, it could be Jesus. Some people have said that the young man would have been Jesus, but that's iffy, and it's not the place where in the other Gospels yeah. they also they identify it as an angel. We'll see that in just a moment. We have an interesting problem here. We have one, John has some strong similarities to Mark, and yet some significant differences, and they're really not reconcilable. It starts with whether or not the sun was up. And keeps going. However, the, what they say is the same. The but when you go to nine, it, it mentions maybe you know whoever interpreted it. It says when he rose early in the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene. Maybe when they were writing, they got all the yeah. stories mixed up. Well, when you go to the longer ending, you get some interesting <clears throat> additives. Now, now after he rose on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene. 
from whom he had cast out seven demons. And she went out and told those who had been with him while they were mourning and weeping. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. Well, that's very different from John. That's yeah. extraordinarily different, different from John. Because yeah. they went home. Depends they how they're writing it. Yeah. The long ending is a, is a much later edition. It's well, that might explain him saying he's seen and believed. Maybe she'd already told him. Could be. So they believe what she said. Let's go to Matthew. Let's read Matthew's parallel. Chapter 28. Matthew 28. Matthew is the one where the guards are on duty. All right. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning. All right. Sun not up, day of the week, dawning. Now that could mean, in theory, in the Jewish conception, that it is now sundown completed and it is now Sunday. But more likely, the wording here is that it's that point between night, between the darkness of early morning and the light when the sun comes up. You know that twilight period before the sun breaches the horizon? That period. It's the dawning. Yeah, before the sun shows itself above the horizon at all, but you still have light. Uh, it's that point where it's, it's that gray point on the Terminator. When you're looking at it from orbit, you can see there's the, the Terminator is not a solid line. It's, it's this gray phase point where the light from the sun is actually being refracted or bit by the atmosphere, and it actually kind of curves slightly around the planet a little bit and bounces off and creates like a gray zone. That's that zone that we're talking about where you have light, but you... Uh, you don't, uh, you don't have a sun in the sky. By comparison, on the moon, before the sun breaches the horizon, you have no light. You're in total darkness, except for starlight. Isn't that interesting? Or, or earth light, if it's reflecting off the earth. And then the sun breaches the horizon, since there's no atmosphere to refract the light. Once the sun comes above the horizon, suddenly, bang, oh, you're in, you're in sharp daylight, unlike on Earth, where you have that nice, wonderful glow of light in the morning before the sun breaches the horizon. That's the time we're talking about. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary <laughs> went to the tomb. Uh, Salome didn't want to get up. And suddenly there was a great earthquake. Well, somehow Mark and John missed that. There was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord, descending from heaven, came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Well, now, that got missed by Mark and John, too. Mm -hmm. Matthew has them coming and seeing this part, which it, uh, the stone had already been rolled away in both John and in Mark. Matthew, they get to see this. And suddenly there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descending from heaven came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. For fear of him, the guards shook and became like dead men. 
But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. I know what you're, that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has been raised, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has been raised from the dead. And indeed, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. This is my message for you. So they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came to him, took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see Okay, some really strong similarities and some really strong, really strong differences. Earthquake happening, it's dawn, Salome's missing, that's kind of minor. They see the angel roll the stone away and perch himself on it, not inside the tomb, but on the stone. Guards fall down, act like dead. He talks to them. It doesn't say they go in. He doesn't say see where his body laid. Really, They just go quickly and tell the disciples. And they do. And then like John, Jesus appears to them. And they see Jesus himself. But here, he can, they can touch him. They yeah, do touch him. And he John, doesn't say, don't touch me. Yeah, Yeah, they do touch him. And John, right. he, he said, don't touch me. Yeah, they reach to, they come to touch him. And John, and Mary does, and Jesus says, don't touch me. I have not yet ascended. In Matthew, they, they drop at his feet and yeah, grab a hold of him. And he doesn't feet. tell them, don't touch me. Right. Hmm. Interesting, interesting, interesting. Well, they say eyewitness accounts can be different. Okay. <laughs> well, this is really different. Let, well, no, but, but also, it's the same. No. It's morning. The tomb is empty. Jesus isn't there. And they have an encounter. They got an earthquake. They got an earthquake. Well, the I'm after, talking about the similarities right now. That's the aftershock from the earthquake during the crucifixion. Probably could have been, right? Uh, yeah, maybe. <laughs> My point is, is, what are the similarities? Not the differences. The similarities are: it's early in the morning. It's Mary Magdalene. The tomb is empty. And they don't have. She doesn't have to roll the stone away, and she has at least one encounter, either with an angel or with the risen Christ, or both. And the proclamation is the same. Go tell the disciples, I am raised. Now, beyond that, there's more details, and, but that, those are the connections. And, they're all, and those elements are the same. And it'll be the same as in Luke. Let's take a look at Luke. Twenty-four. Luke twenty-four. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, there you go again. At early dawn, they 
they, who's the they? Well, it's the women who were watching in the preceding chapter. They came to the tomb, taking the spices that had been prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. All right, right there. They're, they're in accord. There's, it doesn't have the details from Matthew, but it's in accord with Mark and John. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothes. So, so Mark has a young man. Matthew has an angel looking like a bolt of lightning sitting on the stone that he rolled away. And Luke has two men in dazzling clothes. That's an indicator that they're angels, by the way, friends. But it says two, still two men. In dazzling clothes stood beside them. The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Other ancient authorities lack, he is not here, but has risen. And I think that's probably weak. That, that's accurate. He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified and on the third day rise again. You know, he's given them the cliff notes reminder of what Jesus had preached. Then they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all this to the eleven and to all the rest. So not just to the disciples, but to everybody else as well who would hear it. Up to now, we don't know who this is, do we? Now it was Mary Magdalene, verse 10 finally tells us who it is. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told this to disciples. So it's, a, it, it's not a limited group, but the commonality amongst all four stories is Mary Magdalene, get to tomb, Early in the morning, before really before sun up, while the light was you know kind of dawning, Mark says the sun was up, but that's he's the only one who says that. Um, uh, it's 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 still really early. The tomb is empty. The stone has been rolled away. They have an encounter or encounters. And notice what Luke also does. Luke is very different from the other synoptics. But these words, verse 11, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. Then he went home amazed at what had happened. So they had already told him. And Peter, the favorite one, went there. Well, there's an interesting connection between Luke and John. It's the idea that Peter goes and led into the tomb. John adds the disciple whom Jesus loved mm -hmm. as well. And he believed. And he believed when Peter walks away amazed or not believing or befuddled or flummoxed or whatever. 
<laughs> but it's only Luke and John that say that. And that's, that's one of the reasons why, amongst some of the others we've seen already this process through, that it is believed by many scholars that John is aware of Luke's account, maybe even has it in front of him. I doubt that more because there are other, so many differences between John and Luke that can't be explained away. I think it's more the tradition or the proclamation or the reality that in fact Peter, after Mary Magdalene came and preached it and told them, did what she was supposed to do, uh, he wanted to see for himself. And that is in part of, part of his character, think about it. In John's Gospel, while the, the beloved disciple gets there first, he's a better runner, he looks in and uh, uh, notices that it's empty, but he doesn't go in, and then Peter gets there, and the impetuous guy that he is, he just goes on in. Well, he does the same thing in Luke. He goes right on in and looks for himself to see it for himself. Hmm. But, in, but in John, he goes in before Jesus talks to Mary. Uh-huh. That's right. In Luke, Mary, Jesus talks to Mary, and then Peter goes in, in afterwards. No, in Luke, or there Luke, is rather. no conversation with Mary, with, with, with Jesus. Mary has her conversation with the, with the two men, the angels inside the tomb. Yeah. There's no encounter with Jesus in Luke. As I said, the commonality between all four are as follows. It's early in the morning. It's Mary Magdalene. The tomb, the, the stone is rolled away already. They don't have to do it. The tomb is empty. There is an encounter with either an angel or angels and or Jesus in which Charges are given to them to go and tell the disciples. And it is clear, it is Mary Magdalene and or the other women, possibly the other women too, but certainly Mary Magdalene amongst all four Gospels, who is also the first, not only the first proclaimer of the resurrection, the first believer of the resurrection. So you kind of have to... Trying to keep these details separated can be difficult why it's kind of helpful to make like a chart that has, and I've done this, I did this with a class many years ago, where you have each one of them list, list the details in each one of the Gospels, and then run your highlighters through and identify those elements that are the common through them, and it's fascinating to see what's common and what's not. And what's common is the basic facts of the story which is what a cop would look for in multiple witnesses to an event. A cop looking at reports of an event, if he sees that every single story or account of the event is identical to the nth degree, he's going to suspect that it's been fabricated, that they got together and fabricated their details so that they would all be telling the same story. Because when you have multiple people, witnesses to an event, each one has a different perspective and will remember different things. So any good investigator looks for subtle differences and sometimes not so subtle differences, but the commonality amongst the accounts, which is what points to truth. And in this case, what points to truth is when it occurred, who it was who saw it, who experienced it first, 
what they experienced, the basic fact, the tomb was empty, the body was gone. That in, it seems as if there were, there is reason to say that there are multiple witnesses to this event. Whereas in, Mary, in, in John, it's only Mary Magdalene who sees it to begin with, then John and Peter go and take a look. In Mark, it's multiple women. In Matthew, it's multiple women and the soldiers who were there who get knocked out by the angel. In Luke, it's, it's, it's a couple of Marys and Peter. And Joanne. And uh, uh, yeah. So you've got, you've got, you've got the, in every one, you've got multiple witnesses to an empty tomb to a raised Jesus. Who the identity of those multiple witnesses are varies other than Mary Magdalene being consistent. The likelihood there were several other women too because of the synoptics. And the likelihood because of agreement between Luke and John that at least one other disciple, probably Peter, came and checked it out for himself. That seems to be what you can say historically about the event. If you're trying to go back to a pre-gospel version of the empty tomb story, that's what you come up with. And then as it got embellished and told and retold, things like the earthquake and all and the angels sitting on the stone rather inside the tomb all that kind of stuff kind of gets uh, embellished let us say wouldn't you think that since Jesus told the beloved one on the cross that this is your mother take her home mm -hmm. that she wouldn't be among the women probably not and she's not indicated as being among the women well, he was there, so... He was there, but she, she is not indicated as going to the tomb at any point. That's interesting, by the mm -hmm. way, because that would have been one of the things that a mother would have been more likely so. to do. And yet she is never, she's not listed in any of the Gospels as being one of the women at the tomb. She could have been, but had she been, I think the Gospel author would have pointed that out. Well, is well it, not unless she was depressed. Unless this was the, the James that was his brother. Which James? Mother of James, it says. Mother that's that's James. a different, no, that's a, no, that's. There's so many Marys. That's the other, that's James, so that's a different James. James. Okay. That's the other, that's the other James, the James the less. And because James, the brother of the Lord, was not a follower of Jesus during Jesus' right. life. Um. There's too many Jameses and too many Marys. Too many Marys. Yeah. But I would have thought since she was. Miriam was a very popular yeah, name then as now. Yes. And she apparently was still around because he was. Oh, yeah. That she would have been helping. You'd think, but apparently not. Now, maybe she was uh, depressed at home yeah, or whatever reason, right. or they wouldn't let her go because of her age. That's also a possibility. I mean, yeah, she's only gonna be about 14 years older than Jesus, probably younger than some of yeah. the, the, certainly younger than she's Matthew. In good shape then. <laughs> How old was Mary when Jesus was born? 14. At the most, 14. Could have been as young as 12, 13, 14. Let's take 14. Jesus is all, how old when he dies? 33. 33, between 30 and 33. It's hard to say exactly, I think it was 33. So how old does that make Mary at this time? 47 years old. 
She's a young. She now in their culture then. It was old. That was considered not old, but senior. Now, forty-seven years old made you someone who was senior, experienced. Well, my goodness, <laughs> someone like been, Matthew was older going, than she was. She might have been going through menopause. So she well, might have been sick. Possibly, although there there are indications that um, women went through menopause a little younger back then. They were going through menopause in their late thirties and early forties. Because she had followed him around and been strong. They had mentioned her being weak. Well, yeah, I don't true. think it's unusual for. I mean, she was there at the cross. It may have been just too much to but think about going in, back. In the Jewish. The family, the the woman would be there cleaning and the getting them ready for the Exactly. And in fact, you'll see in the movie, The Passion of the Christ, that after the scourging scene, they depict Mary as taking cloths to try to wipe up as much of the blood as she could to be added to the body at the burial scene which is very Jewish and in accord with Jewish tradition of trying to get all the body parts that you can to be buried at the same time. Now, 47 years old, let us say she was 47. The traditions about Mary are that she lived long enough for Luke to interview her in the 70s AD when Mary would have been in her 80s. And in fact, or even maybe close to 90. And that's not impossible. I mean, there are some people who say, oh, there's too many years between the Gospels having been written and the events that occurred. There's no way that Mary could have been alive that long. Nonsense. There are plenty of people who lived into their 90s who are recorded in history in the first century. That's not impossible that Mary lived that long. I think she probably did. She did, we know she lived a pretty long time, and the traditions are that she, most of the traditions are that she died somewhere in Ephesus, although the Roman Catholic Church says she never died, that she was assumed into heaven. Well, that's a late tradition, a very late teaching of the church. Um, I think Mary, the mother of Jesus, is a fascinating person. I think she's an unbelievably fascinating person. As fascinating in many ways as Mary Magdalene, because while Mary Magdalene is identified as the first proclaimer of the gospel, the first witness of the, um, of the resurrection, and she is, and we should never minimize that. At the same time, Mary, the mother of Jesus, becomes the first person to submit herself to the will of God in this whole story, the first person to submit herself to the will of God so that the story could take place. She said yes to the incarnation. She could have said no. But she said, let it be with me according to your will. Which means that she becomes an amazing example for it. Just as Mary Magdalene is an example for all Christians to proclaim the gospel, so the Mary, Mary the mother of Jesus is an amazing example for all Christians to dedicate themselves to doing what God wants them to do. And a lot of people uh, think Mary Magdalene was a prostitute because there's seven, seven, seven demons. Seven demons. The, the prostitute claim is actually based upon the uh, sermon preached by Pope Gregory the Great the Roman Catholic Church has recanted that. They say that they were wrong in that, thank God, because there is no way to connect Mary Magdalene with a prostitute, certainly not the woman who was caught in adultery, which is how they usually do it. What's the seven demons they're talking about? And from Mark's Gospel? Yeah. Uh, that, that was the fact that she was indeed delivered from 
possession in one of the in the stories about Mary Magdalene that Jesus had delivered her from possession. But the idea that she that was somehow connected with adultery or prostitution is kind of weird. Uh, bipolar, maybe. Huh? <laughs> bipolar. She knows about bipolar. <laughs> yeah, maybe, but I don't know. You know uh, about bipolar? I'm not bipolar. I know her, her daughter-in-law. <laughs> oh. Any thoughts or questions? It would seem odd that Jesus wouldn't at least appear to Mary sometime, too, you know. Right oh, there are plenty of traditions that Jesus <laughs> appears to his mother. He appears to quite so many different disciples, both major and minor, both in the inner circle and the outer circles and beyond, even to Paul. There's, there's plenty of reason to say that he appeared to his mother. I, I assume he did. It's fascinating that it didn't get written down. Let's read one more paragraph. Verse 19 of John chapter 20. Actually, I want to back it up one verse. Mary Magdalene, verse 18. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Why did he show them his hands and his side? His wounds. The wounds. Where he had been pierced with the nails and with the spear to prove that it's him. That seemed to be very important, so important that it lasted not only in John's Gospel, but in the Synoptics too, where people said that thought they thought he was a ghost, and so Jesus did several things to prove that he's not a ghost, that he's really there. He showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Well, that's fascinating. What do you mean by breathe on them, blew on them? Well, remember, the Holy Spirit is, is the term, the Hebrew word for spirit is ruach, which means wind or breath, as well as spirit. It's all a, the, the concept of the Holy Spirit in Hebrew thought is the fact that you can feel wind blowing you, but you can't really see it. You know it's real, but you can't really see it. That's kind of like the Holy Spirit. And so there's always been a connection between that. And some people take that, and I have taken that phrase, Jesus breathes on them and they receive the Holy Spirit, and likened it to God the Father breathing into the Adam, the earth creature, and breathing then to them and they become a living spirit. There's an interesting connection there between John and the creation of humans. There's also an interesting question because in Luke, when does the Holy Spirit come upon the disciples? Pentecost? At Pentecost, 50 days later. Here it comes on them that night. They get the well, Holy Spirit. Well, they got another dose on Pentecost, huh? Yeah. But John seems to not really know about Pentecost so much as Luke and Acts do. 
where they tell the story of the Holy Spirit descending upon the disciples at Pentecost. Here in John, he's kind of like telescoped it all into one event. At least that's how I read it. But 23 kind of ties into what I asked before we started, right? Yes. If you look at look at 23. Let's yeah. let's take a look at 23. That's look at 22 one. and 23. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, "Receive the Holy Spirit." Now they've now received the Holy Spirit. Now what is the first thing he tells them to do? If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. That does speak to what you were saying. Okay, yeah. And mine actually, of course, the international. Yeah, read your inner NIV. Right, it says, uh, receive the Holy Spirit. If, if you forgive anyone for his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Correct. So, in other words, the disciples got to forgive them. If they don't forgive them, they're not saved. Is what it says this there. is the traditional granting, one of the places where Jesus grants to the disciples. Power. The authority to forgive sin. Now I want to ask you a question. Does just Peter get this? No. Mm-hmm. It's all the disciples right. who are there. It's not even limited to to the twelve. It just says that they're gathered in the upper room, and it could be any. And it's it, T- Timothy. I mean, uh, uh, Thomas isn't even there. So I mean, right. it's it's not just the eleven. It's not. It, it's it's whoever's there. It, in other words, it's all Christians have not only the authority but the duty to forgive. Yeah, we were taught that in disciple too. Well, yeah. we are we are told. We are commanded to forgive, and we are also told what happens if we refuse to forgive. Now, I've had people say, well, well, who are you to pronounce forgiveness of sin on anyone? Well, it's not due to my ordination. It's due to my baptism as a Christian, which means all of us are called. The Roman Catholic Church doesn't disagree with that, by the way. Did you know that if someone is dying and there's no priest available, a lay person may give last rites, hear confession, and pronounce absolution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I knew that. Now, the words that you say are slightly different from the words a priest would say. But you, still, but, but you can still do that, and it's still just as good as if a priest is there. Now, that's been since Vatican II. They nailed that down since the 1960s. But it's been true forever that a lay person would have the authority in those extreme circumstances with no priest of that around to pronounce absolution upon someone who has confessed their sins in an emergency situation. Well, that's just absolutely fascinating to me that, that Rome accepts that. That's basically our position. Now, as the minister of the church, as ordained pastor and, and, and appointed pastor in the congregation, that's one of the duties of the pastor to announce absolution in, uh, in worship. But that's something that anybody can do. And it's something that we're all called to do. Because we're all disciples. We're all disciples. We've all received the Holy Spirit in our baptisms. We are all called to, to quite frankly, to forgive sins. Now, is, can you think of a reason to not forgive? Now, notice it says, it says, point blank, he says, receive the Holy Spirit if you forgive the sins of any, 
they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. They, they're not forgiven. So, can you think of, I, I can think of reasons to forgive. It's easy. I just think about what I've been forgiven. And if it's a sin against me personally, you better believe that I'm going to feel compelled to forgive it. But can you think of sins that, or someone in some circumstance where the retention, the not forgiving, <coughs> is either appropriate or requisite? Did they not say in the Bible that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Well, that's the unforgivable sin, unforgivable. whatever that is. Yeah. That's the that's that that's the unforgivable sin. However. That's a, you know, that that's really up to God in many ways. Um, <laughs> um, in in the end, that is true. Well, but possibly if you don't say, um, you don't tell me you're sorry for what you did, then I really can't okay. forgive you. Right? The concept is contrition. Now, there's think about it for just a minute. Active contrition. There's think about it for just a minute. When someone gets caught in a sin. There's essentially two responses. Either they're sorry they got caught, <laughs> or they really feel bad about having committed the sin. Really feeling bad about having committed the sin is contrition. And asking for forgiveness in response to feeling bad that you have sinned, you have hurt someone, you have hurt God, that's contrition. Asking for forgiveness is an act of contrition. An act of, of, of commitment that you're not going to do it again is also part of that. That's very different than saying, oops, I got caught. I wish I hadn't. I guess I better ask for forgiveness. That's not contrition. That's just you're sorry you got caught. Now, there is, there is a strain of thought that says that the first circumstance being sorry you got caught is not grounds for forgiveness because there's no contrition there. Whereas true contrition in desiring to be made right with God and with your fellow person whom you've hurt, wanting to undo the damage that you did, recognizing you did something wrong, recognizing it's more than just getting caught, it's the fact that what you did was wrong and you don't want to do it again and you're seeking forgiveness, well there, there is no ground for not forgiving. That's true remorse. That's true remorse. That's true contrition. All right? Whereas the first, I encounter this all the time. People who, frankly, are sad. You see it a lot in children. People, and adults who are acting like children. Uh, you see people who are sorry they got caught. Well, is that a ground for forgiving them? No. Probably not. Now, there may be circumstances in which you're forgiving them could then impel them, move them into contrition. I've actually seen that happen, but that's going to be more rare. Instead, forgiveness becomes license to do it again. So there may be a circumstance in which it's important to withhold initial forgiveness until you see them move from sorry they got caught to sorrow over having sinned. How about the confession is sorry that there's still sin in my life? Whether 
Yeah. Because uh, a weak person, I've still got this sin. I'm sorry. I can't. I struggle Get over this sin. I struggle with this sin. It continues to impact me. It can. I continue to fight against it. But I would. That is true contrition. That is that. that is true contrition. It, it truly is. It's you're not sorry that you're getting caught doing it. You're sorry that you still have this desire to continue doing it, and you ask that desire to be removed, and you try to overcome it. But you fail, but that's beside the point. Fact is, you are truly contrite over this situation. I mean, think about it. Um, alcoholism, drinking, is a good example of that. Now, you know, for one person, having a drink isn't a sin, but for someone who's an alcoholic, having a drink is. We know people who are alcoholics for whom drinking a, drink, a beer is a sin because they know that when they do it, they don't just drink one, they drink 47, and then they go home and they beat their girlfriend or their wife or their whatever, or kids, or, or just you name it. That's, that's sin, and they know it's sin, and if they drink it, they know they're going to be sinning. Well, if they're fighting and struggling against it continually, uh, and asking to you know to try to come out from that, then that is true contrition. Even though they are they're gonna slip again, unfortunately. Uh, prayerfully, though, over time, with repeated confession, with repeated prayer, study of scripture, being held accountable by friends, which is the whole purpose of AA, you essentially start to develop. A situation where you find that people in those circumstances develop the strength and the ability to not sin. Can you forgive them if you don't know who they are? Case in point, graffiti, somebody goes up and puts graffiti on a church, pastor said, oh man, that's, okay. that's bad, but we, we forgive them for okay. that. Two different meanings for forgiveness there. There's the there's the one kind of forgiveness where you release the pain and the anguish that it has caused you. And in that, you forgive. But that's, that's more for yourself than for anything else. And that's the circumstance when you do forgive. And that is, by the way, the only circumstance where you forgive someone who is simply upset about having been caught. Um, or, you know, you're forgiving someone who hasn't even been caught. I mean, yeah. You need to do that for yourself. Otherwise, that, that bitterness and anger is going to eat you to pieces. That's a different circumstance for forgiving. I've done that many times. I've had to. And, uh, and, and even with people who I know are absolutely, they do not care. They have hurt me. They don't give a damn about it. And they're happy they did it. And they're going to do it again if they have a chance. And I have forgiven them because if I didn't, it would eat me to pieces. So I've forgiven them and moved on. I think you have to. You have we to. have an ex-son-in-law who was an alcoholic who ruined my daughter's marriage. But uh, we've forgiven him, and actually I pray for him because his whole family drinks. They're Catholic, and they love their cocktails. And, and they, they drink to excess? It. Well, he does. He does. Yep. He's lucky to keep a job. And that, see that, the, that is where you, the forgiveness is for yourself, not for them. More than anything else, and that becomes necessary. I wish we could find a way to to, to talk about it slightly differently than forgiveness. Uh, 
you're releasing that pain that 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 you're that you're holding. You you're letting it go, so that it doesn't eat you up. That resentment and response doesn't eat you up. It's not an easy thing to do, but 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 you have to do it, or it will destroy because you. Women react differently. Lee would like to kick his butt, but <laughs> well, yeah. well, well, yeah. 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 yeah, go kick his butt, and then you can forgive him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's to get your little pound of flesh in there. Uh, yeah, in general, I've known some women who have kicked some really good butt when yeah. it comes down to it. And I don't blame them, uh, but you know, that's the, that uh, the case may be. You, you, it's important to forgive. Right. Um, therefore, when you look again at the passage, the sins of any that you forgive are forgiven. You retain any sins; they are retained. That may be what he's talking about. That you. He's given them authority to do it, but he's also telling them, quite frankly, if you don't forgive, they're not forgiven. To me, that almost says it is incumbent upon us to forgive, at least for ourselves, to forgive others. Now, there may be circumstances where you need to withhold letting that person know <laughs> that you have forgiven them. But, you know, I've never had anybody beg me for forgiveness where I have refused to forgive. I've known people who have done that. I had a conversation with a friend just recently, and he was telling me about how this person was begging him for forgiveness, and he refused to forgive him. And I said, what, why was he begging you for forgiveness? He says, he's trying to cover his bases. So how do you know that? Well, I just know him. Well, okay. But don't you think that this is going to eat you to pieces? And he says, well, eventually I'll forgive him. Oh, but you want to you stew in the anger for a while. Yeah, that's right. I want to stew in the anger for Some people enjoy stewing around in that anger. If you don't forgive them, the sin is still there. The person that did it, it doesn't matter one way or the other. They, it mean, may not. Yeah. If they're sorry, that's fine. But if they don't, it's still there because it's eating you up. It's eating you to pieces. The sin is still being committed. The sin is still there, yeah. It's still hurting you. It's still damaging you. That's the reason to do it, to stop it. I think we can forgive sometimes. We have trouble forgetting what people have done to us. Yeah. But is that true forgiveness if you yeah. can't deal with that? Forgive and forget? Yeah, that memory. All right. Um, but he also told the disciples to forgive 70 times 7. Yep, always forgive. Yeah. Repeatedly forgive. you got to remember, that is the principle. That is the idea involved. That's the reason why we forgive even when, even when there's no contrition. We at least forgive in here even when there's no contrition. Now, uh, forgiving and forgetting. That's really tough. However, I have discovered, and I've seen this in people, that when you truly forgive someone, quite frequently, because the impact of that sin is no longer hitting you, the remembrance of it fades. That's true the remembrance of it fades. It may still be there, but it's no longer constantly hanging around on your shoulder saying hello every day. 
like when you're holding on to a sin, it sticks with you. You remember it. Things that you see remind you of it. Faces you see remind you of it. Smells you smell remind you of it. Things you hear remind you of it. But once you've forgiven something and you set it aside, you've let go of it, it gets off your shoulder. And over time, things that you see, things that you hear, things that you smell, don't bring it back to your memory as quickly. It fades, even horrible things. With time, once they've been released, do start to fade. To the point where I have had people come up to me after years. This happened recently, actually, surprisingly. Um, a fellow came up to me, and it was, it was at a reunion, a reunion of um, my seminary class, and he came up to me. And he asked me to forgive him for some horrible things that he had said. And I, for the life of me, don't remember that he said them. Yet he said, you were right there, you heard them, they hurt you. We had an argument about it. Are you sure this was me? <laughs> yeah, it was you. And there were several other people, by the way, who were there, who were there at the time and who were there at the reunion who said, oh yeah. Maybe I'm getting Alzheimer's because I don't remember this. <laughs> the more I thought about it, the more he told me of the circumstances, yeah. suddenly it you came remember. back to my memory. See, he should have left it alone. And I told him that. You know what? It would have been better for you had you left that one alone. But it was no issue. We hugged, we cried, we prayed together, and everything was good. Because it was true contrition. It had been eating him up for almost 20 years. Yeah. Maybe he deserved it. <laughs> Isn't it funny, though, what some people will latch on to and hold, and to the other person, it's insignificant. Insignificant. Time, yeah. It had been significant at the time that it happened. It really hurt, but it had been, I had just released it and gotten rid of it and gone on, and it had so receded into the past that I had completely forgotten about it and probably never would have thought of it again. <laughs> Until he brought it up because he was being eaten up to pieces about it. He had, he had, he had been roiling that around in his head for years and years and years. And it was torturing him. I mean, that, that's a good illustration of that. And so my forgiving him was the absolute mandatory thing that I do, even though, quite frankly, the emotional pain of the event was still really gone even when I remembered it. You already said, well, then I don't forgive you because it must be true. <laughs> no, uh, I, I love the prayer that says, and I forgive the sins of any that I have forgotten. Oh, never thought about that. That's a, sometimes we've got to really kind of do that. Well, that's because, a sweet story. Well, it was a powerful event personally. Uh, it's one of the, the only events I've ever had in my life where that kind of thing has happened, but I've heard it happening before. I've never had it happen to me. But, uh, and that then, was recently? It was recently. Went to my last, uh, last new <laughs> alumni group. Because well, was, recently was last June. <laughs> I mean, it was, that's pretty that's recent. recent. Yeah. With, with all the Gospels running together, did Peter ever ask Jesus to forgive him for denying him three times afterwards? We'll see. <laughs> if, any, if anywhere it happens in John. Obviously, he had to feel sorry for it. He, oh, he saw Jesus. Again. So, How could he face Jesus again? 
Some people say that it happens. Some people say that it happens in John in the next chapter. We'll see. Well, how about those that kept falling asleep when they were supposed to be watching? Oh yeah. Yeah, but especially Peter, he denied Jesus, you know, three oh, times. Yeah. And oh, when yeah. Jesus appeared to him again after the resurrection, yeah. he must have felt pretty sheepish, I would think. Oh. I would imagine so. Okay, we're going to pick it up with Thomas in chapter uh, 20, verse 24 next time. You have been listening to a Bible study by Dr. Gregory Neal. Senior Pastor of St. Stephen United Methodist Church and Rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2011 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. For more information or to listen to other seminars, Bible studies, or sermons by Dr. Gregory Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at St. Stephen United Methodist Church, 2520 Oates Drive, Mesquite, Texas, 75150. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.